title of the sermon is this, Peter and John Arrested. Here's great things are happening with the church, and Satan's going to push back. Satan's going to fight. And so now we really see what happens when we take a stand. Sometimes, sometimes we're not so popular when we take that stand. And so far, what's happened in the book? Acts chapter 1, Jesus commissions them. They go up in the upper room. They get, uh, that, they get that unity. They get that unction, Holy Spirit filling. They get that utterance to go forth and share. Paul pre- or Peter preaches at Pentecost and 3,000 people get saved. And then we looked at the miracle last week. And man, things are going great. And all of a sudden, here come the temple police to arrest them and put them in hold. And now the oppression uh, begins. So let's look at this topic tonight and let's talk about Peter and John arrested. Lord, help us to understand uh, the passage in front of us. And Lord, help us to leave here determined and committed to love you and serve you no matter the cost. In Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. Well, last week we looked at uh, Acts 3 and we saw a miracle that took place right outside of the gate of the temple. The gate of the temple is called Beautiful. And you remember the story, right? You have uh, Peter and John, they're walking in at the hour of prayer. You know what? With that, they were where they were supposed to be, when they were supposed to be there. And great things happen where we're, when we're just where we're supposed to be. Um, I would hate to be sitting on my couch eating potato chips uh, and not at church when the Spirit of God is moving here. You know, I'd rather be where I'm supposed to be when I'm supposed to be there. But because they were right where they were supposed to be, they came across a man who was lame in his feet. And not to re-preach last week's sermon, but just to kind of, again, set the stage here for the message tonight. Uh, The man asks them for alms or for money. And Peter looks at him and says, look me in the eyes. He said, silver and gold have I none, but such as I have give I thee. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. He put his hand down, the man gave him his hand, and he, he helped him stand up. And the man didn't just wobbling stand. He leaped up from the ground, and he took off running into the temple, leaping and skipping and jumping. Boy, God had totally, totally healed him uh, through the, the disciples there. And this, uh, then what happened? What happened is a spectacle took place. People gathered to see the man who had been sitting outside of the temple for years, now healed and now whole. I, I wonder if that man was not there when Jesus walked in the temple, and if Jesus left him there unhealed and thought to himself, you know, I'm going to leave him here for Peter. I'm going to leave him here for Peter. And we know he'd been lame from his uh, youth up. I don't know that. That's somewhat speculation on my part. But I wonder if Jesus didn't think, I'm going to leave him crippled right here by this gate so that one day Peter can heal him and this could be used to see a whole bunch of people reached. Well, a whole bunch of people were reached because a big, huge crowd gathers there outside of the temple in the courtyard and on Solomon's porch, uh, Peter stands up and he preaches a sermon about Jesus and uh, at the close of chapter 3, we see that he has brought them to a point of decision. Now, um, uh, uh, please understand me that great things were happening, but this did not sit well with the religious leaders who had just killed Jesus. Now, the temple, okay, we think of the temple as this place of religious gathering. Do you understand that the people who ran the temple are the people who were responsible for killing Jesus? And so they get rid of Jesus and they think, he's gone. That's over. We finally got rid of him. 
There's this story about him raising from the dead. We don't know about all that, but he ain't around no more. And then lo and behold, Peter's standing there on the porch, and he's healing people, and he's preaching in the name of Jesus. And they're thinking, what do we got to do to get rid of this Jesus guy? He's still, uh, he's still plaguing us. He's still bothering us. And so they, uh, they did not appreciate what was going on. They did not appreciate Peter preaching that Jesus is the only way to heaven and that sermon of Jesus is the only way to heaven. So as a result, Peter and John were arrested. Peter and John were arrested. Why? Because they took a stand for Jesus. If you've been watching the news at all this week, this wouldn't be on mainline news, but if you've been watching some other news sources, some secondary news sources, uh, you would know the name of Pastor Coates. Pastor Coates uh, pastors an evangelical church in Alberta, Canada. And uh, the Canadian government uh, shut down churches some time back uh, because of the virus, and they complied when, when the virus was first coming around. And when they got a better idea of what the coronavirus was and the pandemic was, uh, eventually the sanctions against the church were lifted and they were able to meet. But then a second wave came through and the government attempted to shut the church down a second time. And Pastor Coates did not feel that that was the right thing for him to do. And so he kept his doors open. He made sure there were all sorts of protocols in place, mask wearing and social distancing and temperature checks and all of the sorts, and uh, they defied the government's orders uh, to shut down the church because they felt like the higher authority was the Lord, and they were commanded to meet and pray during times of hardship, not disband. And so health officials began to show up to these meetings, and uh, earlier this week or late last week, uh, I believe it was a week ago this Sunday or maybe two weeks ago this Sunday, they showed up to the church service and they arrested Pastor Coates during the service, and walk him out of the building. Pastor Coates is sitting in prison right now. His family is not allowed to see him. They had a trial for him, or rather a hearing for him, this past week, and they told him, we will let you out of prison if you agree to stop preaching. Have you ever heard of John Bunyan? This is John Bunyan all over again. John Bunyan was given the same exact ultimatum. And you know what John Bunyan said? He said, I will not violate my conscience. I would rather go to the grave than to violate my conscience and deny my Christ. Pastor Coates has basically taken the same stand, and that church in uh, Alberta, Canada, has released this statement, uh, a very strong statement against the government, and uh, believes that uh, that's going wrong. Now listen, if that can happen in a country that is, shares in a, a, a spirit, a culture of freedom... That is our neighbor. Trust me, this is right around the corner for churches in America. It's right around the corner. And if you know much about uh, our country, you know that it hits in California and in New England first, and then it filters in to the rest of the country. Peter and John took a stand. They preached truth. They preached Jesus is the only way to heaven, and they were arrested. The reason why I wanted us to go through the book of Acts this year is because it gives us a visual of what it looks like when Christians take a stand. Sometimes big things are happening, with, uh, rather some big, big things are happening with the establishment of the church here in Jerusalem, but not everyone is thrilled about it. We have said on Sunday mornings all year long that if you take an unpopular stand, you can expect pushback and problems for that stand, no matter your disposition. 
I believe that if we are willing to take a stand for Jesus, then people will begin to take notice. Those who are searching will find Jesus through our patient witness. Those who are hateful toward Christ will take notice of our witness and understand that there is a power much greater than our own intellect or ability that is driving what we do. We're going to be from verse 1 down through verse 13 this evening. Let's look at five principal thoughts out of Acts chapter 4 as we consider this topic, Peter and John arrested. Peter and John arrested. Point number one is the word persecution. Persecution. Look down with me at Acts chapter 4 and verse number 1. The Bible says, And as they spake unto the people, the priests and the captains, the captain of the temple, and the Sadducees came upon them, being grieved, being grieved, that they taught the people and preached through Jesus the resurrection from the dead. Hey, not everyone was so excited about this man being healed. Not everyone was so excited about Peter preaching in the name of Jesus. By the way, 5,000 people would get saved as a result of this sermon. We'll see a little bit later in this chapter. But these, these priests and the captain of the temple, they weren't so thrilled about it. Boy, Peter came on their turf and preached about their enemy and healed a man on their turf. And that, wasn't, that just wasn't uh, going to settle well with them. Uh, they were grieved at the preaching of Jesus. Jesus said, I did not come uh, to bring peace but a sword. And sure enough, here the name of Jesus is bringing a sword of contention. Matthew chapter 5 verse 11 says, Blessed are ye when men shall revile you and persecute you, and shall say all manner of evil against you falsely for my name's sake. Matthew 10.22 says, And ye shall be hated of all men for my name's sake, but he that endureth to the end shall be saved. Romans 8.17 says, And if children then heirs, heirs of God, and joint heirs with Christ, if so be that we suffer with him that we may be also glorified together. First Corinthians chapter four, verse 10, the end of the verse says, but we are despised. We are despised. Second Corinthians chapter four, verse 11 says, for we which live are always delivered unto death for Jesus sake, that the life also of Jesus might be made manifest in our mortal flesh. Second Timothy three twelve, maybe the most popular of these verses says, yea, and all that will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. We are asking the wrong question. Uh, instead of why am I being persecuted, we should ask why am I not being persecuted? Why am I not being persecuted? The Bible says that we are salt. We are salt. Matthew chapter 5 verse 13. Uh, Jesus said, ye are the salt of the earth. But if the salt have lost his savor, wherewith shall he be salted? It is henceforth good for nothing but to be cast out and to be trodden under the foot of men. I had a youth pastor uh, when I was uh, 17 years old, and he loved to tell this story, and uh, he'd always uh, ham it up and get a lot of reaction out of the teen girls, and I'll, I'll give the more mild version of it. But basically the story goes that when he was a youngster, uh, he was playing Little League Baseball, and he slid into second base, and um, the young man who was receiving the ball at second base, uh, the second baseman, if you will, had to bend down to get the ball, and his cleats came up, and he's sliding headfirst into second base, and his uh, arm caught the metal cleat of the boy at second base, and it ripped his 
arm open right here. Just gashed it open real bad. He's bleeding all over the place. It almost caught an artery, which most likely would have been either death or really bad. And um, uh, Anyway, they bandaged it up and uh, they, you know, they washed it out and bandaged it up and it began to heal. But then a few weeks later, there began to be streaks that were running down his arm toward his heart. And that's not good, all right? Those of you that are in the nursing field know that's really not good. But that, that's a sign that you've got blood poisoning and, you know, you very well could die. So they took him to uh, the, the doctor or the, the urgent care, the emergency room, whatever it was. And the doctor peeled back that wound and he poured salt directly into the wound, some medical-grade salt, to try to kill off that infection. And, uh, you know, again, he's telling this to a group of teenagers, and he's really going into gory details. I'll spare you that. But um, uh, he, said that, um, he said that he's never been in more pain ever in his life. You know what salt does? It stings. It stings. Now, if we're going to be salt the way God has called us to be salt, we're not always going to be popular. We're not always going to be popular. Now, I think I should say this every time I talk about this topic. It's not okay for you to go out and be unkind in the name of Jesus and then claim persecution for Jesus. That's not okay. It's not okay to get in your car and drive down to a gay pride rally in New York City and hold up signs that says, God hates gays. And then when you're mistreated, come back and say, persecution for Jesus that's not okay. That's not okay. Um, uh, it's one thing when you are mistreated for your positions in Christ. It's another thing when you're mistreated because you're just not being kind in the name of Jesus. God has called us to uh, be wise as a serpent and harmless as a dove. Harmless as a dove. Listen, the name of Jesus is contentious enough. You don't need to be uh, uh, mean about it. You stand by the word of God. You preach Jesus with a smile on your face and uh, a love of God in your heart. And I guarantee you there are going to be people who just don't like you because of that stance right there. Uh, but look, Satan hates the Lord. Satan hates what's right. And he's going to launch a, uh, an all-out assault on those who take a stand for what is right. I believe that the average Christian sitting on the average Christian church pew is salt that has lost it's sting. We're more concerned about taking the edge off than we are standing for Jesus. Hebrews chapter 11 verse 25 says, Choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season. Are you willing to suffer affliction with the people of God if that's what it comes to? James chapter 5 verse 10 says, Take my brethren, the prophets, who have spoken in the name of the Lord for an example of suffering affliction and of patience. I want to just be clear here. We have a rich heritage of men and women who have been willing to give up their lives and be persecuted so that we can have the right to sit on padded chairs, enjoy air conditioning and heating buildings, and pretty chandeliers that hang over our heads. Go through the Bible and show me uh, more than five or six people who were just heroes of the faith who didn't in some great way suffer for their stand. Suffering uh, for your stand is a huge, huge part of being a, a, a giant in the faith for the Lord. In fact, we celebrate these people because even in the face of persecution, they did not 
back down. Peter and John stand up there on Solomon's porch. They're at the temple with the man they had healed, and they preach Jesus. And boy, that just did not settle well with the religious leaders of the temple. They had them arrested. Number one, persecution. Number two, notice the word preaching. Preaching. Look at Acts chapter 2 and verse number 2. The Bible says, And as they spake unto the people, the priests and the captains of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, being grieved that they taught the people and preached uh, through Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they laid hands on them and put them in hold unto the next day, for it was now eventide. I love verse 4, Howbeit many of them which heard the word. What word did they hear? They heard the sermon we, we, we looked at last week in Acts 3. They heard the sermon about Jesus, and they repented, they believed, and the number of the men was about 5,000. Wow! Can you imagine that? 5,000 people at once getting saved? Now, we make a big deal out of Pentecost. 3,000 people got saved at Pentecost. And listen, most people are familiar with the story out of Acts 2, more than they are the story in Acts chapter 4. Hey, listen, I'm not saying that one event was more important than the other. They were, more, uh, they were both equally important. But from a number standpoint, 2,000 more people got saved as a result uh, of the sermon preached in Acts 3 than the sermon preached in Acts chapter 2. 5,000 people got saved. What does it mean to preach? Preach means to publicly proclaim or declare. Publicly proclaim or declare. Let me ask a question this evening. Are women allowed to be preachers? How many say no? Women are not allowed to be preachers. How many say yes, women are allowed to be preachers? Okay, about 50-50. How many are just not sure? Because you think it's a trick question. Okay, you're right, it's a trick question. Um, it, it depends on how you define the word preach. The word preach uh, here means to boldly proclaim or declare. Are women allowed to share the gospel? Oh, yes, they are. Absolutely. Absolutely. In fact, we'll get a little bit deeper in the book of Acts, and we'll find Philip's daughters are called prophetesses. You know what they were? They were bold, soul-winning young ladies. And they pre preached the gospel to men and women alike, and they were they were lifted up and hailed for those actions. Uh, ladies, you don't have to leave the preaching of the gospel to the men only. Uh, you ladies can share the gospel. And I encourage you to share the gospel. I, I told the uh, soul winning class this uh, two weeks ago, but I, I, and I don't totally understand the psychology of this. But all my years of going door to door and talking to people, you know, I'm usually able to engage women a lot better than I am men. I, I'm able to get a woman to listen to me for a lot longer than I'm able to get men to. And I found that my wife is able to get men to listen to her longer than she's able to get women to listen to her. I don't totally understand the psychology behind that. But I would say that's not just true with me and my wife. I'd say that of all of the people that I've uh, viewed, men are able to get women to listen to them longer. And women are generally able to uh, engage a man longer with the gospel. And uh, I think there's something to do with the cross-gender thing there. Uh, and not in an impure way. I just think that's how it works. And listen, uh, women, God can use you to see some folks saved. Now, us men, sometimes we just wouldn't be able to lead to the Lord. Let me take this a step further. Everyone in this room, everybody look up here at me. Everyone in this room, from the youngest to the oldest, you all have a circle of influence in this room that no one else has. At, from work to your neighbors to your family, friends, and your connections, there is somebody that you can lead to Christ that I will never be able to lead to Christ. 
There is somebody that you will be able to share the gospel with that no one else in this room will be able to share the gospel with. And uh, whether or not they get to heaven may be left entirely up to you. I don't like calling too much attention on uh, my family uh, by the nature of my job and, and being the, the, the preacher. I, it, more of it happens than uh, I would like. But this is just a, a perfect illustration to slip in here. Uh, and many of you know that my wife's uh, cousin's husband passed away. And my wife uh, came to America and she actually got saved in Bible college, oddly enough. And uh, did, thought she was saved when she came, but wasn't. And got saved uh, after going out soul winning. She got saved. And um, uh, she went back to, to her home country of Peru. And uh, one of the first people that she witnessed to, one of the first, was uh, Sandro, the guy who just died. And she gave him the gospel. Sandro was already searching and didn't know where to look. And, and Angela gave him the gospel and helped him to understand that. And then encouraged him to go to the Baptist church around the corner from where they lived. And uh, Sandro would go there. And after two or three weeks of attending, he would get saved. And then his wife would get saved. And then his children would get saved. And uh, now um, uh, his daughter-in-law is now saved and has been baptized in that church. In fact, Sandro, who just passed away, the funeral was today. Sandro was a 54-year-old deacon in the Baptist church there in Angela's hometown. Why? Because a little woman, five foot three inches tall, brand new to being saved, went home and she preached the gospel. She preached the gospel. And listen, I would have never met Sandro had it not been for that. Who I wonder if Sandro would have ever gotten saved if someone wouldn't have, Angela wouldn't have gone home and given him the gospel. Now, who is the Sandro in your life? Who is that person that you need to stand up and preach and proclaim the gospel to? Look, I know it's not always easy, but God has called us to do it. Now, there's a difference between being a preacher and a pastor. The Bible gives specific qualifications to those who want the pastor. For example, the, a pastor is to be the husband of one wife. Those of you that raise your hand and say women can't be preachers, I think what you meant is women can't be pastors. Or even, you know, get up in the mixed crowd and preach. But the husband of one wife. I have never figured out how a woman could be the husband of one wife. I, I, that one, I've scratched my head for a long time. And I just don't, I know the gender, you know, all the different uh, gender changes and, you know, gender euphoria, whatever you want to call it. A dysphoria is really what it is. Um, but I still can't really get my mind wrapped around that one. Another qualification of a pastor is he is to uh, have his house in order. He cannot be a novice or new to Christianity. He cannot be given to a filthy lucre. He can't be a brawler. He can't be a rioter or someone who's out uh, partying um, on a regular basis. Oftentimes people think, well, if I put a few dollars in the offering plate, then I'm doing my part. It's the preacher's job up there to tell others about heaven. I pay him to do that for me. And my friend, if this is your attitude, you are greatly mistaking. You're greatly mistaking. Hear me and hear me uh, clear. We all have equal responsibility to share the gospel, whether or not you're in full-time ministry. We all have the same. It's equal. Uh, again, I think that coming from a Catholic background, a lot of people think that the pastor is able to get hold of God more than, than they are. Look, you have the same access to God I do. The exact same access. I don't get more of God's ear because of the position I hold at the church than you do. 
And uh, it is not more my responsibility to preach the gospel than yours because I'm the pastor. It's all of us equally. We share in that same responsibility. So whether you're uh, old or young, rich or poor, a man or a woman, happy with life or unhappy with life, it is all of our jobs to preach Jesus. So we see persecution. We see preaching. Number three, notice power. Power. Look at Acts chapter 4 with me in verse number 7. So Peter and John have been arrested, okay? Uh, Verse 7, And when they had set them, Peter and John, in the midst, they asked, By what power or by what name have ye done this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Ghost, said unto them, Ye rulers of the people and elders of Israel. What a brilliant question these unsaved people asked in verse number 7. Sometimes unsaved people can say the most brilliant things accidentally when it comes to the Bible. Notice what they asked. By what power, power, or by what name have you done this? Now, what they meant to say, I believe, was, who do you think you are, and who do you think gave you the right to cause all this commotion? But Peter and John took the question the way it was asked, and uh, they answered it. They answered it. Verse 8 tells us that their power came from the Holy Spirit. Their message to the group of men was about the name of Jesus. Uh, Who gave you this authority? The answer is Jesus gave us this authority. Christian, I want to be really clear on this. We ought to obey God rather than man. If the government ever comes along and tries to shut us down and tell us we can't preach the Bible and tell us we can't believe the Bible for how it's written, wants to label us as hateful or hate speech or whatever it is, let God be true and every man a liar. We are not to cowtail, we're not to bow, we're not to come under authority when they are out of line with God and the Bible. Now, I will obey every ordinance of man that does not violate Scripture. But if they're going to tell me to disobey the Bible, I'm sorry. We'll we'll have a great spirit about it. But we're going to disobey government while we obey God. Because we don't get our power from a governor. We don't get our power from a president. We don't get our power from a police chief. We don't get our power from some governmental structure or system. We don't get our power from the Constitution of the United States. We get our power from the Holy Bible, from the God who wrote it, and the Spirit of God that indwells us. And that's where we are to look. Number four, notice the word persuasion. Persuasion. Look at verse number nine. The Bible says... If we this day be examined of the good deed done to the impotent man, by what means he is made whole, be it known unto you all and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, I imagine Peter's got his finger out right here pointing at the council, whom ye crucified, whom God hath raised from the dead, even by him doth this man stand before you whole. And then came a stinging indictment. This is the stone which is set at naught of you builders, which has become the head of the corner. 
Paul, or rather Peter, are you trying to get your head chopped off here? <laughs> Neither is there salvation in any other, for there is none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. Now this is the same Peter who uh, cut off the ear of Malchus and then followed afar off and denied Jesus just a, a few months prior. And now here he is putting his finger in these guys' face and saying, you are the ones that, he's quoting prophecy out of, quoting the Old Testament out of, and saying, you are the ones that have rejected the chief cornerstone. You killed the man who healed him. What was their message? Their message began over letter A, sin. Sin. Look at Acts chapter 4 and verse number 10. Be it known unto you all, and all the people of Israel, that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom ye crucified. Now, when Peter was trying to persuade people about salvation, the first thing he did was point out their sin. There are some churches in America that are huge. I mean, thousands and thousands and thousands of people. And they preach Jesus. But they preach, a, preach down what I'll call a, preach what I'll call a watered-down version of the gospel. They're afraid to address the sinful condition of man. You know, people don't like it when you preach against sin. When I say people, I'm not talking about you. I'm talking about the masses. If you want to build a big church, don't preach against sin. People will come. People will come, especially if you know uh, how to do all the rest of it. You know how to put on a performance, and you know how to make it first class, and, and uh, you know how to make people feel good. People want to be made to feel good. Peter, he said, look, we're going to talk about sin. Your actions crucified Jesus. Now, here's the reality. These were the men who were directly responsible for having Jesus killed, but the truth, truth be told, it was my sin that held him there. And it was your sin that held him there. And if we're not willing to talk about sin, then what are, we, what are people going to be saved from? Here's, uh, here's an old adage. Someone can't be saved until they realize they're lost. And we need to make sure we adequately paint a picture that sin is destructive and sin separates and sin ultimately sends us to hell. Peter here, when he's going to work to persuade these men, he begins by talking about their sin. Now, by the way, Peter isn't pulling any punches here, but Peter didn't pull any punches with the people in the, in the temple back in chapter 3. He accused them of crucifying Jesus as well. You remember Acts chapter 3 and in Acts chapter 2? He says, you all put Jesus on the cross. And so he's preaching the same thing to the council that he preached to uh, the general public. He paints a picture of sin. Letter B, scriptures. Scriptures. Some of you here might be wondering, well, how do I persuade someone 
to get saved. And I would say, take our soul winners class on Saturday mornings at 9.30. We'll be going through our material four different times each year, beginning again in the spring here very soon. And we'll be announcing a startup date soon. Sign up for it, and we'll really give you a rundown on how to share your faith. But this is just the Cliff Notes version. You have to help someone understand that they're a sinner. Letter B, you have to take them through the Scriptures. Look at verse number 11. This is the stone which was set at naught of you builders, which has become the head of the corner. What's he saying here? He's saying Jesus is the word. Jesus is the cornerstone of the church. Does this passage or wording sound familiar to anyone? Turn over to Matthew chapter 21 and verse number 42. Matthew chapter 21 and verse 42. While you're turning there, Psalm 118.22 says, The stone which the builders refused is become the headstone of the corner. He's quoting Psalm 118. And Jesus again would quote Psalm 118 in his preaching. Matthew chapter 21 and verse 42. Jesus saith unto them, Did ye never read in the scripture? The stone which the builders rejected, the same has become the head of the corner. This is the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. I think sometimes we forget that just a few months separate Matthew 21 and Acts chapter 4. Jesus would say this standing right outside of the temple. Peter and John were arrested in that same temple. Jesus would say this to the religious elites who ran the temple. Peter in Acts 4 is speaking to the religious elites that run the temple. It's very possible that when Peter says what he said in verse 11 of chapter 4, he's saying something to them that he watched Jesus say to some of these same people just a few months prior. He's reminding them, hey, look, you killed Jesus. He rose from the dead. And you thought you had it bad before. Guys, guys, Jesus is the real deal, and you need to turn. He took them to the Scriptures. Letter C, letter C. The Son of God. The Son of God. Acts chapter 4 and verse 12. Look here. I love this verse. Neither is there salvation in any other. For there is none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. You know, Peter, he's witnessing to these guys. He's trying to persuade them to turn from what they did to Jesus and believe. And what does he do? He points them to Jesus. He points them to Jesus. You say, Pastor, how do I tell someone how to be saved? Well, help them understand they're a sinner. Take them through the Scriptures and make a big deal about Jesus. Because Jesus is the one that saves us. How many here can remember back to a day where Jesus saved your soul? Would you raise your hand? You remember a day Jesus saved your soul? Someone preached Jesus to you, did they not? Someone explained that Jesus went to Calvary on your behalf. He became your sin. My sin held him there. Your sin held him there. You can't see someone saved unless you're making a big deal out of Jesus. After you've pointed out sin and presented the scripture, make sure you magnify Jesus in the cross. I tell the people that take the soul winners club, I tell them, you need to know the gospel story. What's the gospel story? The death of Christ, burial and resurrection. And so part of the requirements of the class is that we read 
we read the crucifixion account over and over and over again so we know the details. You're telling someone how to get to heaven. You're trying to persuade them. Go through and tell them all of the agony. Not just the physical agony. The social and emotional and spiritual agony that Jesus went through that day. Paint a, a, a grim picture of what Jesus went through. You know, many times when I've told people that story of how Jesus died on the cross, many times I've gotten teary-eyed. Not every time, but many times. Sometimes, if I've had enough hardship going on in my life in the background, I've had a tear run all the way down my cheek. Sometimes my eyes have just gotten watery. Sometimes I've not cried at all. But you know, sometimes when I've told the story about how Jesus suffered, I've seen other people get teary-eyed. I remember one lesbian woman I led to the Lord back in Chicago. I told her the story about how Jesus had died on the cross. Sitting there on that couch in that living room that day, tears ran down her cheeks and were just dripping off her cheeks. And I got down to the end of telling that story and showing her how she needed to put her faith and trust in Jesus. And I asked her if she wanted to accept God's love. And she looked at me and said, I've never heard anything more beautiful than that. She said, I've lived a terrible life. And if God can love me, and God wants to accept me, how could I reject that love? We got down on our knees in that living room there, in that, uh, uh, that, that poor home in, uh, in inner city Chicago, and that young lady received Christ in her heart. You know what broke her down? The agony that Jesus went through on the cross on her behalf. Make it personal, folks. Make it personal. Do you understand that if you would have been the only person ever to live, and you would have sinned, Jesus would have found a way to die on your behalf? Uh, you know, I love Romans 5.8. For, uh, but God commendeth his love toward us in that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. But I love a lot more Galatians 2.20. That says, who, uh, who loved me and gave himself for me. Me. He did it for me. He did it for you. You want to persuade someone to be saved, make a big deal out of Jesus. Hey, but one last thing here before we move on to the last point. Don't leave Jesus in the grave. He's not dead, folks. Three days later, he stood up and beat death. Now, uh, from a theological standpoint, some of you enjoy the, the theology that's given out from the pulpit here. Um, Jesus conquered death when he died, but Jesus gained the right to give us life when he rose again. Had Jesus stayed dead, he would have not been able to save us. It was very, very important that he raised from the dead. You see, our sin killed him, but then he stood up and beat our death. And he is the victor. He is the champion of love. And don't leave Jesus in the grave. He sits at the right hand of the Father today wanting to intercede for anyone who wants to be saved. Number five, notice the word perception. Perception. Look at verse 13. Now when they, the council, this is a combination of the scribes, Sadducees, and Pharisees that 
rule the temple. There, there's some doctrinal differences between them, but all in all, they came together and they made up a council, and they, the council, when they saw the boldness, notice that word boldness, the boldness of Peter and John, and perceived that they were unlearned and ignorant men, they marveled. And they took knowledge of them that they had been with Jesus. Letter A, notice, they were perceived as dumb. They were perceived as dumb. Look back at verse number 13. It says, Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were unlearned. They were unlearned. Now they considered them as part of those who had never gotten a formal education. Maybe you could put it this way. They had never been to Bible college. I was talking to a pastor friend of mine uh, earlier this week, and he was telling me that uh, a deacon in his church will not send his kids off to Bible college. And he said, this deacon is one of the finest Christians I know, but he refuses to send his kids off to Bible college. And he said, one of the reasons why is because that deacon believes that Bible college turns um, uh, boys and girls into Pharisees. And I have to say, I understand his point. I have met my share of Pharisees that graduated from Bible college. Now, not everyone that graduates from Bible college is a Pharisee. I'm a Bible college graduate. I really work hard to not be a Pharisee. But boy, I sure went to school with some people who are. You know what? The Bible says knowledge puffeth up. Knowledge puffeth up. Um, These Pharisees and scribes and Sadducees, most likely they all had the first five books of the Bible memorized. And if you don't know how difficult that is, sometime go to Genesis 1-1 and then put your finger at the end of the book of Deuteronomy and just look how much text is there. These were smart people. They knew the law inside and out. They look down at Peter and John and they see fishermen, peasants, just trademen, blue-collar, dumb, dumb when it came to formal education in the Bible, and it says about them that they marveled. Peter and John, they were common men without any quote-unquote formal training, but you know what they had that the Pharisees didn't have? They had been with Jesus. All right, everybody listen up. You don't have to go to Bible school to be a preacher. You understand that? Peter and John never went to Bible school. They were preachers. God wants to use anyone. You understand that Amos was just a a simple, I believe he was a farmer, and God used him mightily. Gideon was the lowest of the low in the country of Israel, and he delivered the Israelites from the hands of the Midians. Um, How about... How about Peter and John here? They spent time with Jesus, but they didn't have any other credentials. Now, that's, those are pretty big credentials, looking back on it. But not to these Pharisees. They were perceived as dumb. You know what? They didn't care about the perception. They preached with boldness, letter B. They were perceived as dense. And I have in parentheses next to that the word idiots. They were perceived as dense, just dense, just tontos, just Idiots, okay? Um, uh, now, when they saw, look back at verse 13. Now, when they saw 
the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were unlearned and ignorant. Ignorant. I don't know what the kids say these days. The terminology changes every couple years. But when I was a teenager, we'd look at someone and say, you're ignorant. You're ignorant. And that just meant you're dumb. You're dense. There's just not a lot going on up there, right? Um, they looked at uh, Peter and John who were standing there before them and waxing eloquent, and they said, these guys are ignorant. These guys are ignorant. Sometimes people out in the world will think that you are a complete idiot because you give up your day off to go to church, because you put 10% of your earnings or more into the offering plate, because you sweat and work hard in uh, your service for the Lord, because you carry gospel tracts around with you and give them to everything that moves. Hey, let the critics say what they may. We don't do this to impress human beings. Instead, we do this to please the Lord. Letter A, they were perceived as dumb. Letter B, perceived as dense. Letter C, they were perceived as different. As different. Look back at verse 13. Now, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were unlearned and ignorant men, they marveled. This is my favorite part of the verse. And they took knowledge of them that they had been with Jesus. It wasn't a formal education or some weird fairy dust that caused these men to reach thousands and thousands of people with the gospel. These were just common, ordinary men just like you and me. What allowed them to be used by God? They had been with Jesus. They spent time with Jesus. I know there's good people in this world who read their Bible and pray and never share the gospel with anyone. But can I just tell you, if you're going to truly walk with God and have the relationship with Him that you ought to, then His passions are going to become your passions. They just are. Can you think of anything more important to our Heavenly Father than that the lost come to Jesus for salvation? Because I sure can't. The Bible tells us there's rejoicing in the presence of the angels over one soul that repenteth. You know, one day Jesus is going to come back, and I think that day is going to be very soon. I think His return is, is, is drawing nigh. I mean it. I think that the Antichrist is probably alive and well on the earth. I think that uh, the, the stage is being set for a one-world government. I think this whole Great Reset is part of it. In my opinion, I think Jesus is probably coming back in the next two or three years, if not sooner. The rapture comes. Jesus is going to be done using the church to see people get saved. Now, people will still get saved after the rapture, but not through the church anymore. Church era will come to a close. You know, right now, I believe Jesus is looking, or rather, God the Father is looking down from heaven, and He's waiting for that last soul to be saved. And then He's going to look at Jesus and He's going to say, Go get my children. 
Go get them. And many Christians are wandering through life making money, climbing a corporate ladder, you know, leisure with a family, whatever it may be. And you know, that just shows that we're not focused on Christ the way we ought to be. Jesus is concerned about the souls of men. And I would just ask this question tonight. Are you? When the world looks at you, do they say, well, there's just something different about him or her. The way they talk, the way they walk, the joy in their heart, the peace that's in their life. They love with a deep, sincere love people they probably shouldn't love. There's forgiveness in their heart. People look at you, do they say, boy, he's been with Jesus. She's a Christian. Is there a difference in the way you live? Tonight, White Oak Baptist Church, I just want to encourage and admonish all of you to do your part. Remember, there's people in your world that I'll never meet. There's people in your world that other people in this church will never meet. You have a chance to influence them with the gospel. And I would ask you to do your part. Let's have our heads bowed and eyes closed this evening. And Peter and John preached Jesus with boldness. And they didn't have any special gifts or talents. What they did have is an intimate walk with God. A unique relationship with Jesus Christ. You and I are not going to get the chance to spend three and a half years with Jesus in the flesh. But you can spend time with Jesus tonight when you get home. Tomorrow morning when you read your Bible and you pray. You can have a chance to spend time with Jesus in prayer. And I promise you that if you'll do it the right way, our Savior will burden your heart for the lost like He never has before. It's just the reflex of having a relationship with Jesus Christ. You say, Pastor, if I do that, I'm going to be labeled as weird and strange. Yep, just like Peter and John. Are we concerned what others think about us or what God thinks about us? What means more? Lord, help us tonight to follow the example of Peter and John and preach your name no matter the cost. Lord, help us to spend time with you. And Lord, may your passion for souls become our passion. Lord, somebody here tonight knows how to lead souls to you, but just hasn't done it in a long time. They've lost their fire. Others here, Lord, need to learn how. Lord, wherever we're at, would you convict us? Would you guide us? Would you encourage us to follow your perfect plan in Jesus' name?